Thanks so much for having me. Um, if you can't hear me in the back at any point, just let me know and, and I will uh, talk louder. Um, so uh, it's a great ple pleasure to be here at Stanford. It's actually, uh, surprisingly, my first time on this campus. So I was walking around a little bit earlier today and um, you guys do have a very beautiful campus here. Um, okay, so I, sorry, there's just a lot going on up here. Um, so, so today I'm going to be talking about my book, Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. And I'm going to get straight into the talk, and, and I'm happy to go over any sorts of questions you may have in Q&A after the talk is over. I was sitting at a production meeting with a group of commanders of the Revolutionary Guard uh, who are in charge of production of media in the country. About 20 minutes into the uh, discussion about the films that they were going to be funding for the year, one of them said to his colleagues, this youngest generation in our country doesn't understand our religious language anymore. We're wasting our time with the things that we make. They don't care about it. That's why so many of them were in the streets protesting against our system last year. Uh, Mr. Ahmed, uh, the, the person who had been saying that was talking about the 2009 Green Movement, which had taken place just about two years prior to this meeting. At the time, the 2009 Green Movement was the largest uh, mass movement in Iran since the 1979 revolution. Since then, we've had, obviously, others. I had joined these men in numerous meetings since that 2009 Green Movement, and in each they contemplated what had inspired so many young Iranians to come out into the streets and the numbers that they had. The demonstrations went from where is my vote to down with the dictator in a very short period of time. And the slogans of that 2009 movement were almost identical to the slogans of the 1979 revolution, which many of the men at the top echelons of power in the, in the Revolutionary Guard in specific remember chanting themselves as teenagers and young adults uh, in 1979. In that same meeting, one commander of the Revolutionary Guard, whose wife and kids had been a part of this 2009 movement, said to his colleagues, these kids don't care about the uh, revolutionary stories that we've told them the past 30 years, and that's our fault. We can't blame them. We haven't properly communicated our stories to them. We need to bring them back to our side by telling them better stories. Now, what does it mean to have the commanders of Iran's most powerful military apparatus, the very force in charge of defending the revolution, admit that the majority of the population no longer understands the regime's religious and revolutionary language any longer? My book starts with the classic paradox of any successful revolutionary movement, namely, how does the commitment to a revolutionary project get transmitted from one generation to the next as historical circumstances change? Or in other words, what happens when a revolutionary movement becomes successful, becomes a part of the power structure, so therefore becomes the status quo, and then they are in charge of telling and communicating to the next generations to believe in the revolutionary project, but not enough to foment a new revolution of its own. So this is a, a, a question that is at the heart of any revolutionary society. To answer this, I did fieldwork in Iran over a 10-year period with the Basij paramilitary forces and the Revolutionary Guard media and cultural pr uh, producers to understand how they envisioned the future of the Islamic Republic as it enters its fifth decade. What can we gain from understanding the Islamic Republic from those charged with communicating what the regime stands for? 
I started my research thinking that most of my time would be spent with Re Revolutionary Guard media producers on films and work that targeted the youth who had been protesting against them in 2009. And while there was a lot of that, the discussions behind closed doors focused much more on heated debates among the different generations of the Revolutionary Guard, particularly the first generation who was at the helm of power today. Um, many of them are veterans of the Iran-Iraq War, but they tend to be in their mid-50s and early 60s, so they're not that old. Um, and those in the third generation of the Basij, who at the time that I was doing my research were in their early 20s and now are in their early 30s. So a big part of this book is looking deeply at generational changes in revolutionary systems. A revolutionary state has the dual project of appealing to citizens while simultaneously defining what the revolutionary project will mean over the long term. How to achieve this goal without losing the revolution altogether is a contentious question. Now, there's been such a wealth of scholarship on areas of resistance to the Islamic Republic, but our understanding of the Islamic Republic itself remains two-dimensional, and our notions of those who make up Iran's armed and paramilitary forces are caricatures. By shining an ethnographic lens on the media producers of the Islamic Republic, I found a state, much like any state project around the world, including ours right here now, that is in the constant process of becoming. The concerns of the men who helped create the Islamic Republic's vast media output are not confined to religion and Islamic politics. Rather, they tended to focus on class, generational differences, and social mobility. So as much as this is a book about new media strategies, it's also about deeper social phenomenon. Those who have viewed Iran's politics over the past 40 years exclusively through the lens of Islam have overlooked important social dynamics that undergird the system. My findings led me to question not only the existing depictions of these men, but more generally the predominant frame of analysis when it comes to understanding the Islamic Republic. Since 1979, when revolution swept through a country that just a year before the U.S. President Jimmy Carter had been in Tehran and had toasted as an island of stability, American policymakers have scrambled to understand an upheaval that not only blindsided them, but that expressed a deeply felt anti-imperialism as Iranians demanded independence from Washington. U.S. news media at the time described Iranian society as, quote, possessed by madness, and Iranians as blinded by a religious fervor seeking martyrdom at all costs. Such explanations may have answered an immediate need to understand the revolutionary system in simple terms and eventually to undermine the revolutionary government and the aging Ayatollah at its helm. In essence, it's had the effect of rendering the Iranian regime as irrational. But this framework, unfortunately, has left us, uh, has not evolved much in the past 40 years, and more importantly, it's left us ill-equipped to understand the Islamic Republic today. What happens then, I ask in the book, if we reframe our analysis and our study of Iran from the vantage point of the supporters of the Islamic Republic? If scholarly and public culture analysis has failed to understand the supporters of the Islamic Republic in all of their complexities over the past 40 years, 
What happens if we take a different approach to studying power in Iran today? One that insists, as anthropology demands, on an actual curiosity about the positions and worldviews of the Islamic Republic on their terms. So a bit of a bit quick background for those who may not know, and I know many of you in the audience do know, um, but Iran has a bifurcated military apparatus system with the, with the traditional military, or what's in Persian called the Artish, that existed prior to the 79 revolution. Uh, but when Ayatollah Khomeini came to power after the revolution, he feared that this military would remain loyal to the Shah. And so he created the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as an organization that was meant to defend the revolution from within, and really more than anything, to defend the revolution from what they feared could be a potential coup from either the military, the formal military, the Artish, or the American embassy because of what had happened in 1953. <laughs> So um, the, the Revolutionary Guard, in the first year and a half after the revolution becomes successful, is really in charge of uh, suppressing many uh, movements that had begun up against the, the, new, the new central state, especially in the Kurdish and Turkmen regions of the country. It was only after the invasion of uh, Iraq into Iran in September of 1980, so a year and a half after the revolution came to power, that the Revolutionary Guard is sent to the, uh, to the war front in the south of the country, and throughout that eight-year war, it burgeoned into a parallel uh, organization like the formal military with an air force, a, um, ground forces, and naval forces. And then eventually their special forces or the Quds forces, which Soleimani was the head of much later. And the Basij paramilitary organization is, of course, the, the paramilitary organization that was used to, to funnel and recruit members to go into the war front to fight during the 1980s. Now, when, uh, right before Ayatollah Khomeini died in, in, in 1989, he wrote in his will that he would ban, the, he desired that the militaries and the different armed forces in Iran not be involved in the political situation of the country after his death. However, because of the way in which the post-war economy took shape and the rebuilding of the economy and the country after the war, the Revolutionary Guard becomes involved in much of that rebuilding, eventually turns itself into a very powerful economic force, and then from there um, into slowly into a political force in the country. Today, over 75% of the population is under the age of 40, meaning that they don't remember the revolution or the war, which are the two foundational stories of the Islamic Republic. For those who are social scientists in the room, you know how important foundational stories are to any state project. And for those who are not, just think about all the controversy that the New York Times' 1619 project that was just released a few months ago has caused as far as anxieties about what happens when you begin to question foundational stories in any state project. Now, Masoud Dehamaki, who is the man in the middle with the megaphone, he's one of the founders of Ansar Hezbollah in Iran, and he's turned since then into one of the most commercially successful filmmakers in the country. Uh, he started to make films in the um, just a, a, almost now 15 years ago, and it's really interesting because before that, uh, as one of the leaders of Ansar Hezbollah, he was really infamous because he was in charge of uh, suppressing the student movement, the, the first sort of uh, big national movement that had started against the Islamic Republic in 1999. And he uh, and his forces suppressed the students in the University of Tehran's uh, dormitories uh, that, that year. Now, he, because of this reputation he had, when he started to make films, and especially with his first major feature-length film, uh, Ikhra Jiha, or 
the outcasts. That film broke all box office records in Iran at a time when no one in Iran was going to watch war films any longer. So at the time, I was following him uh, because of, of the stir that, that that film had created. And he was writing in his weblog at a time when people were still writing weblogs. He was writing in his weblog that because of the success of his film, uh, through Ansar Hezbollah and the Basij, they were going to create new workshops and new centers for younger Basij and Hezbollah members to learn how to make this more entertaining form of media. And that's when I knew that, that this, one, this was going to be the project I wanted to focus on. He said in an interview, during the Iran-Iraq war, we had to shed blood for the revolution and we did. Later, we believed we should publish journals and books for the revolution, and we did. Today, we think cinema best expresses our goal, so we make movies. But Dehnamaki is not just talking about technique here. He's speaking of a wholesale shift in emphasis. For him, the quest to make revolutionary subjects is a struggle to be waged in visual media. And I think we can all appreciate that a little bit more today with everything that's going on in our own media sphere here about how the quest to create certain kinds of political subjects is actually a fight that is being borne out in the visual media that we have all around us. Now, Dehnamaki represents a shift away from the blunt propaganda of the first two decades of the revolution to creating new entertainment to attract younger audiences. Now, first off, every government produces propaganda. Some are just more savvy at it than others. And second, national militaries can be intimately involved in media productions. A prominent example that scholars have long studied is the very close relationship of some Hollywood studios with the US military. There are more recent studies out now that look at the ways in which the Israeli and Colombian militaries, for example, are also active media producers. In the study of revolutionary governments, we have much literature that looks at the ways in which the Soviet Union, the Cuban cases, and the Chinese, for example, have, have utilized media in this way. And although there's a lot of great scholarship on media in Iran, one gap remains the media that's produced by the regime, which by far spends the most money on media production in the country. Given how long it took me to gain access to do this research and what an inhospitable place Iran can be for long-term social scientific work, it's not surprising that we don't have much more scholarship on uh, regime-produced media. Now, I'm briefly going to talk about the methods that I used uh, to gather the data for this research because of the nature of the, of the research and the questions I was asking. So as an anthropologist, I sought to do long-term research. I knew I didn't want to just rely on interviews because like state elites the world over, they would stick to their formulaic answers and responding to me. Um, I wanted to not only know about their work, but I wanted to see them produce it, and more importantly, I wanted to be present as these projects were evolving over time, because that's where I knew some of the richer data would be. But doing long-term participant observation on this project was not straightforward. I have been working on these issues for the past 10 years, first in relation to war veterans exposed to chemical warfare. I directed an oral history project, and later I directed a film, a documentary film uh, entitled The Skin That Burns. And it was only because I had worked closely with veterans exposed to chemical warfare over a period of four years that I was later able to get my foot in the door with the Revolutionary Guard's media producers. Because in my earlier work with the veterans and the doctors who worked with the, with, on the care of those who had been exposed to chemical warfare, I showed them that I could be respectful of their worldview and empathetic to them as human beings, even when I disagreed with them politically. 
So once I had decided on the research for this book, I mentioned it to them, and one of them in particular, a, a veteran who himself later became a doctor and was one of the main advocates for chemical weapons survivors in Iran, he introduced me to some of his friends who were key media makers in the Revolutionary Guards media world. And it was only through an introduction from someone so well respected within that world, and he told them that he trusted me and had seen my work over the past four years, that I was able to get my foot in the door. But coming from, some, from a background that the regime considers counter-revolutionary, with parents tied to the leftist movements of the revolution, and my mother's family um, with uh, high-ranking members in the Mossadegh uh, administration, and as an Iranian-American, which we know that the state sees as potential uh, spies, it took another two years of constantly showing up to meetings and events and trying to set up more uh, events with them that I eventually convinced a few of them to trust me. I knew that my social media presence, my writings, and even my cell phone conversations were being monitored in Iran at this phase. Over time, I was granted full access, but I knew full well that the doors could shut on me at any moment. Do you guys want to come on in? Have a seat. Yet what I did not expect was the degree to which the U.S. government would go in, in order to uh, curtail my academic freedom because I was doing research in a sanctioned country and because I was a dual national. My university ended up spending tens of thousands of dollars, upwards of $50,000, on legal fees for me to be able to even do this research, something that most universities would not be willing to do, especially for a graduate student at the time. And they ended up hiring a big DC law firm in order to defend my right to do this research. In addition, as an Iranian American, my loyalties were constantly questioned by the US government. As we know, dual nationals are often the targets of aggressive foreign policy from Japanese Americans during World War II to Muslim Americans after 9-11 to Iranian students today at the borders during Trump's maximum pressure policy. As I write in an academic piece that just came out last month, being a researcher that's seen as a national security threat is not just the domain of authoritarian regimes over there, but very much the domain of our government right here. And this all happened during the Obama administration, so it's also not just something that we tend to, to focus on the Trump administration for. Yet, I stood out in that environment because I was the only female. Even though I had spent a decade prior to this research living in Iran, I, there was no way that I could blend into this crowd. Not only is the world of the Revolutionary Guard and Basij masculine, but their media world is especially masculinized. This is different from the non-regime media world in Iran, because actually Iran uh, has one of the highest numbers of uh, women female directors in the world. But the regime media world is very different. Women Basijis do exist, and they exist in the cultural realm, but they're mostly writing uh, oral histories or mostly writing books. Uh, they're not really involved in the film world, and I'm happy to go into the gender politics of this during Q&A if anyone is interested. Methodologically, I was a participant observer in editing rooms, production meetings, funding meetings, on film shoots, and during the subtitling of films. 
Since I was trained as a filmmaker myself, they took me much more seriously throughout the whole project, and more importantly, they began to give me tasks when we were doing filmmaking and in the editing rooms and things like that. And that's where a lot of the rich data came from, because after a while they forgot that I was even there because we were working on the projects together. I also went on many domestic and international trips with the different filmmakers and producers in order to see how they were introducing their work to different audiences and why. Now we tend to think of the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij as, hom as homogenous groups of men. When the Supreme Leader gives an order at the top, it's followed down the line. However, what I discovered is men who work in ad hoc ways, who fought over resources, and who disagreed with one another all the time. In other words, they were far from uniform or cohesive. One of my main interlocutors, who in the book I call Mr. Ahmadi, he and his family had joined the 2009 Green Movement uh, during the first two days. He's a veteran of the war, and both of his legs had been cut off by a bomb in the very uh, sort of beginnings of the war. He and his family look very much pro-regime. Now, what do I mean by that? Because of the way revolutionary citizenship was regulated based on dress in Iran, sartorial choices end up mattering more than just reasons of fashion, per se, but because they signal revolutionary belonging, something that's been written a lot about in other contexts, revolutionary contexts, is the divide between the friend and the enemy. In Iran, uh, or on the Iranian case, much less has been written about this, but it takes the form of khodi and ghayda khodi, or us versus them. And as many of you know, much of that is dependent on the political situation. So in this context that we are in today in Iran, the khodis become a much smaller circle, and at other times it expands slightly, uh, slightly, but not much. So when Mr. Ahmadi and his family showed up to these Green Movement protests, it was him in his wheelchair with his two legs cut off, his son with a slight beard, and his uh, wife and daughter both wearing long black chadars. The first two days, nothing happened to them during these protests. They very much disagreed with Ahmadinejad. They had voted for Mir Hossein Musavi. But by the third day, when the Basij had been given orders to clamp down on the protests, one of the orders that they had received was to target families who looked very pro-regime. Why is that? Because if the Green Movement was supposed to be anti-revolutionary, then people like Mr. Ahmadi and his family should not have been there and should not show that they were supporting this movement. So that day, they signaled out Mr. Ahmadi and his family, and they beat him so bad that he got knocked out of his wheelchair, ended up in the hospital. And a few weeks later, he was um, fired from a, a very prominent regime cultural center that he had worked in for many years. For those of you who may know, Revayat Tifat. Um, but Mr. Ahmadi was not dismayed. He believed that he and his cohort had just as much of a legitimate say over the revolution and its future as its youngest generation. So Mr. Ahmadi ended up opening his own production studio and started to make regime media for freelance, which he believes is the correct type of media, uh, that, media that regime media makers should be advancing. By forefronting these issues, I'm able to show how contestation in the Islamic Republic is not just between the regime and the people, or the young people versus the old generation, as it's often written about. Instead, through an ethnographic lens on the supporters of the regime, this book illustrates how contestation in Iran today is, uh, involves conflict over the very boundaries of what the regime is. Now, let me illustrate a bit more about what I mean about this intergenerational divide. 
So one afternoon I was at the Art University in Central Tehran and uh, the Basij student organization there uh, would put on these weekly meetings called Halqay Honar or, or art circles and they would invite uh, regime filmmakers to come to these in an auditorium slightly bigger than this. The regime filmmakers would come up, they would screen their work and then they would have discussions with the Basij students about uh, the, the films and, and debates about what was being shown. Now that day they had invited uh, Mr. Hosseini, who's a leading regime filmmaker and a captain in the Revolutionary Guard. Mr. Hosseini was the leader in the first generation of Revolutionary Guard who was trying to build new media strategies to bring back the folks who had been protesting against the system during the Green Movement. During the meeting, he told the students in attendance that regime media needed to work towards projecting a more inclusive vision of the Islamic Republic one that could reach portions of the population that had been protesting the system. In the middle of him talking, after he had shown a few of his films, the leader of the Basij student organization got up in the middle of the auditorium, interrupted Mr. Hosseini, and angrily pointed his finger at him and said, your generation may be tired of confrontation, but not ours. When, we, when the whole thing ended and we ended up leaving, Mr. Hosseini turned to me after we left the auditorium and said, these young Basijis don't realize that distancing ourselves from the general public is what got us into this mess that we now face. We need to reach out to the other side that is pro protesting us, not alienate them as these kids want. You know what their problem is? They don't know what it's like to be marginalized in society. They don't remember because they were all born after the revolution. All they've ever known is a system in which our side has been in power. The leaders of the Islamic Republic's armed forces have more at stake today even than the defense of a political system. These men and their families did not command respect in Iranian society prior to 1979. The monarchy of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi formally marginalized religious families and the Iranian intellectual elite of the day and of today looks down on them. The creation of the Islamic Republic gave pious Iranians of, of Mr. Hosseini's class and generation a sense of purpose and a place in society. I often heard them wonder aloud anxiously, if circumstances in the country changed, would they be driven to the periphery again? This is the central issue at the heart of defending and protecting the Islamic Republic among its supporters. It's about having a place in society, about counting and not being marginalized. And so although there are many members within the Revolutionary Guard, especially the first generation and the second, who disagree with how things are going in the, in, in the Islamic Republic today, it is very difficult for them to come out against it because what they see from the opposition and what they sense from the opposition is such disdain that they fear that if they come out against this system then they're going to be relegated back to the margins if a new political system comes to the forefront. Mr. Hosseini continued to me that day, the younger Basijis don't know that if we don't take care of this revolution we'll be relegated back to the margins. They don't know how quickly things can change. And this again is a really important point because those in the first and second generation of the Revolutionary Guard remember partaking in the revolution and how quickly, when they didn't even imagine that the Shah would leave so quickly, how quickly things did end up changing. And so that's one thing that they're always sort of holding on to and saying that this younger generation doesn't understand. Now, of course, in this endeavor, they've ended up marginalizing whole sectors of the population themselves. And this, I think, presents the bigger problem uh, at the heart of Iran's social and political life. 
Yet, interestingly, Mr. Hosseini and his colleagues did not let their own kids join the Basij, the very organization that they themselves had joined so enthusiastically when they were teenagers and young adults. That, for me, was a big surprise, and I didn't really expect that. But the reason that I was given over and over again was that it would be a step down on the social ladder that they had already scaled. So they had come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and throughout the past 40 years had been able to uh, rise into middle and upper middle classes. And those who've gone into the business realm obviously have become rich in the country. And so they did not want their children going and being a part of the Basij because those Basijis still tend to be from lower socioeconomic classes. So they wanted to put their kids in, in other places and not with them. So while this is about maintaining their place in society, deeper social phenomenon such as class and social and cultural capital have now led to divisions among the supporters of the Islamic Republic. So who are these younger Basijis and why is there such a divide? I slowly got to know the student leader of the Basij uh, student organization at the Art University, the one who got up and angrily pointed at Mr. Hosseini. I call him uh, Mustafa in the book. Younger Basijis such as Mustafa feel that the revolution has gone astray because the older generation has lost touch with its values. Like many of his classmates in the University Basij organization, Mustafa hails from a pious working and lower middle class family that migrated to Tehran from, the pro from smaller provinces. When as a teenager, Mustafa wanted to pursue filmmaking, his family couldn't afford the expensive camera equipment necessary, and they didn't have a wide social network in the capital. So his father, a supporter of the Islamic Republic, encouraged his young son to join their high school's Bastige organization to see if they could help him out. And actually one of the mentors in, in their organization had worked on film and photography before and was able to secure the resources and the camera that he needed in order to be able to pursue his, uh, his hobby at the time. He eventually got into the art university and once he graduated with a degree in film, Mustafa easily found a job at a production house run by Basijis that made documentaries for state television allowing him to be a full-time filmmaker and provide financially for his family. The revolution had offered Mustafa and his friends a social mobility to which they saw the corruption of the older generation of revolutionaries as a threat. They're the ones who are soft, not us, he told me. We appreciate their sacrifices during the war, but they've become corrupted by money and obsessed with making themselves like the secular elite. So central to these debates is not only what revolutionary stories to tell, but who can tell them? Who are the rightful heirs to the revolution? It's a question with ever-shifting boundaries. In the book, I end up offering a range of media strategies that I saw them observe, and I'm only going to go into them briefly with you all today. But there are three main media strategies that I saw them develop over these 10 years. So they knew that anyone who would watch state television and watch their products, media products, would, would know that this was propaganda. So they began to think, okay, how can we have people watch our, our media and not think that it's us who made it? How can we remove our fingerprints? So one of the things that they ended up developing at the time was that they would make their films, and especially documentary films, burn them on C VCDs or DVDs, and then give them to men who sell banned uh, movies in the streets of, of, of different cities around the country. 
And this way, people would buy these films thinking, oh my god, this is an underground film. This is a film that wasn't able, got censored and wasn't able to be produced and shown. And so this is how people were, were taking them in. And interestingly, one of the main productions that they supported in that way not only circulated very prominently in Iran in that fashion, but it, more importantly, I find, circulated among the diaspora at things like docu nights and other sorts of events that are created to show films from Iran. Uh, and today what they're doing is because of the way in which uh, technology has advanced, uh, they don't have to rely so much anymore on DVDs and VCDs, but they are also now creating internet television sites um, and uh, uh, social media accounts in which they are creating short three to four minute videos uh, and especially during politically sensitive times, like after any of the protests that have been happening. And uh, these are now being picked up by lots of different opposition groups and are being circulated as the voice of activists from Iran. But these are, many of them are produced by these small uh, Revolutionary Guard production houses in Iran. Uh, there are now also new distribution strategies that they've created. So instead of showing their films in Tehran first, what they end up doing is they take it and they, they start to show them in, in, in the different provinces, especially smaller towns is where they start. So in places where there aren't movie theaters, they will set up um, small, uh, they will set up uh, um, sort of festivals and then slowly bring their, their films throughout months to all of the different provinces around the country and then show it in Tehran last. That is completely counterintuitive to how any filmmaker would show their films first, right? Like here you show first in LA and New York and then you open up to the rest of the country. It's as if they're deciding to start in Omaha, Nebraska and then eventually work their way to LA and New York. So why do they do this? Well, one of the, the reasons that they spent, and they spent quite a bit of money on this actually, and the reason that they do it is because they would say to me over and over again, if we show in Tehran first, the intellectuals and the film critics, as well as the uh, diaspora film stations, will see these and start to critique them from the beginning. So what we do instead is we show it to all of the other parts of the country first, because neither the intellectuals nor the diaspora television stations are really paying attention to the provinces. And then by the time we bring it to Tehran and they start critiquing it, we don't care anymore because we've already shown it to a good part of the country. And then the third media strategy that they've developed, uh, which I actually think is probably their, their, their uh, most important and more importantly most successful, is that they are now, since 2009 onwards, completely reformulating their stories to no longer be about Shiism and Islamic politics, but instead to be about nationalism and a particular kind of quote-unquote uh, pre-Islamic uh, Persian nationalism. So, and this is one of the reasons why Qasem Soleimani was so incredibly uh, um, popular within Iran, because they had, and I followed two of his main media teams around for many years, they worked very, very hard to, to project Soleimani to an internal audience as a Rostam of Iran and not as an Imam Hussein. The media products that they produce for Arab audiences outside is still very much about a particular kind of Shiism and Shia identity. But what's being produced inside is, is different from that. And the, re the main reason is that they knew that after 2009, 
people within the country were very mad at these forces, at these armed forces for suppressing the green movement. And so for them, it was about how can they re-articulate who they are to no longer be about protecting the Islamic Republic, but to be a force that is there to protect Iran as a nation. And I'm happy to go much more into this in Q&A if anyone is interested, because there are lots of different ways in which they do this. Yet again and again, my conversations with members of the Revolutionary Guard and Basij turn back to issues of corruption, uh, social and cultural class, and generational differences. Often, my interlocutors turned their anger on one another more than on those who did not agree with the regime. Their vast and nuanced disagreements revealed a complicated political reality that could not be contained in the familiar binaries that we use to describe Iranian politics, such as reformist versus hardliner or anti-regime versus pro-regime. In fact, in the aftermath of the nationwide 2019 protests just a couple months ago in Iran and the very violent suppression of that protest, two of my research interlocutors and in the youngest generation of the Basij, uh, who I write a lot about in the book, they began to make their first public comments against what the state has been doing. And this was a, a big shift in, in how I saw their political trajectories change. And it's also something that we're starting to see manifest itself in the upcoming parliamentary elections too. There's a whole group within that third generation of Basijis who is really beginning to challenge the, the first and second generation about how they think the future of the government, of the state should be. But one of them came up at, a, at an award ceremony at a documentary film festival in December of just a couple months ago. And this was after the clampdown had happened uh, in November. And he said on stage, he brought his two little daughters up on stage and he said, I've been to Syria. We've heard the refrain, be careful not to turn Iran into Syria. And it's true, but that refrain has always been directed towards the people. I'm here to say it's time to direct that message to the heads of the state. Be careful not to turn Iran into Syria with your actions. Now, as the Islamic Republic enters its fifth decade, keeping the revolution alive will depend on the ability of its image makers not only to appeal to a younger population that wants change, but also to build consensus among members of the younger generation within its own ranks. The task before the Islamic Republic is to win over a broad cross-section of its citizens while simultaneously defining what shape its revolutionary project and its state apparatus will take over the long term. In this dynamic, how best to achieve this goal without losing the Islamic Republic's founding vision altogether presents a reality in which everything becomes both a possibility and a big problem. Now in conclusion, the men who appear in this book as well as their families challenged everything I thought I knew about Iran, revolutions, and states. This book is not only about state media, but about the men who produce this media and what it means to doubt what they have fought for, not know what is to come, and be wrought with anxiety about the fact that they may be relegated back to the margins of society if their political project fails. Thank you.